0: Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. I went to this conference this past week, uh, the Exponential Conference, anybody heard of that? In uh, Orlando, it's the North America's largest And they said maybe even the world's largest church planting uh, conference. And so it was a very interesting thing. But I arrived in Florida. And do you guys remember colds? Do you remember getting colds? Like before everything was COVID for two years. But do you remember before that we used to get colds? So I got to Florida and I got a cold. So I sound way worse than I am. Um, And so please just try to bear with me. One of the cool things that I heard... And then I promise I will get started. One of the cool things I heard while I was in Florida uh, by a guy named uh, John Tyson. Anybody familiar with that name when I say that? a Couple of you, three of you. Um, John Tyson, I guess, is in New York, in the Bronx, I believe. Um, and he said he, he toured the world to study, I think he said the last 17 revivals in the world. So all the places where these revivals broke out in the world. And, and to try to see if there's like a, a one key principle that that like is the reason revival breaks out. So we went and he interviewed people and talked to people at all these places uh, to figure out why revival started where they were. Uh, and when he came back, he summarized all of his stuff. And what he said, you know, people would think, well, it's prayer, right? And what he said was, well, prayer is part of it, but that's not the principle. They are like, well, it's holiness, right? Holiness is what brings revival, right? And he said, it's not holiness. It's, a, it's part of it, but it's not the principle. And what it, the, the principle that he galvanized at the last 17 revivals that brought about God's outpouring in these places was that God goes where he's wanted, which seems very basic. And at the same time, it's a very profound idea Uh, And so one of the things that he said was, if you want God to come in your life, he will come in your life. If you want God to come in your family, if you can collectively get your family to desire God to come in your family, God will come in your family. He said, but for revival to happen, it requires a whole region to collectively want God to come. And so I, before we jump into this, can we just sort of like open ourselves in a posture of prayer? Would, would you guys feel comfortable about just inviting God to come, just to say that we want you here? Like, I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to do anything that God's not doing. There's, I, I don't want to participate in any religious thing. I want, I want an experience of the real God. So we just pray. And so God, we just collectively ask that you would come. And Father, we say that we want you here. God, we want you here. We're desperate for your presence. Would you come into this place, God? By your spirit, would you touch each one of us? We want you to come. We want you here, God. Would you come? Fill this place, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. It was a, it was a profound thing. Uh So, we're going to just jump in. You know, one of the things I've observed uh, is that over the last two years, one of the things that has been in fairly short supply is joy. Would you agree with me? If you look around, would you say that joy is kind of lacking, right? I mean, we have a pandemic, and we have to argue over whether you should wear masks or not wear masks, and we have to argue over whether vaccines are okay or if they're from the devil we have to argue over, you know, politics and everything that comes with that. Then we have all this, the racial unrest. We have all kinds of things, right, over the last two years. Then we have inflation and, and now this invasion in Ukraine. And one of the things that I seem to, to experience at an all-time low is joy. That it seems like it doesn't matter where we look, we're lacking joy. People are becoming more cynical, Right? I don't know if you've noticed that in yourself, I tend to be more cynical, I, and it's something that I have to fight against. Uh, people are more divided, and it seems like we're getting to a place where division may never be healed. Do you feel that way? Like, there's like this lack of joy and maybe even a lack of hope. And that's just at a national and global level, right? Like, this is just, we're not even talking about our families yet. Like, all of us have experienced all kinds of things. Some of you, like... The idea of of hanging out for Christmas or going home for vacation or or spending time with your family, like there's so much division even in your family that you're like, that's not something I want to do. For some of you, it's your own household. It's like, you know, my marriage is not going very well or parenting is just not going very well. Like, and and I would imagine if I talk to each one of you, there's probably some significant thing that you're dealing with. Like, everybody that I've talked to has a story about something that's very, very significant that's sucking joy out of our lives. Have you noticed this? And I will bet, like, if I talked to a bunch of you, we would, we would find that, if, um, that maybe even we're tempted to despair. Like, if, if, I, if I name that even, like, there's sort of like a, oh, yeah, I could I mean, that's not far off for me. And yet... We enter into this Lent season, and if we're followers of Jesus, we have to juxtapose this lack of joy with the great anticipation of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, which means all things are being made new. And we have to balance somehow this this lack of joy with the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and that that means something for the way that we do life. And so even when things feel the darkest... God is still making all things new again. And so God is still in the business of exchange. And what I want to explore today is that God still wants to give us freedom and joy. That God still wants to exchange our brokenness and our lack and our despair for freedom and joy. And so that's what I want to dig into today. Last week we began this series that I've called Exchange, and we've been looking at Isaiah 61, and for many of you, that will be familiar. If you missed last week's podcast, it's posted uh, if you missed the sermon last week. But essentially, when we get to Isaiah 61, there's all of this judgment that has come on the nation of Israel. Isaiah's prophesying all this judgment. And at the halfway point about chapter 40, it turns that the nation of Israel is going to come back into the land. The nation of Israel is going to occupy their land, and they're going to once again become the nation they were supposed to be, except for Isaiah says, you're still not going to represent God the way you were supposed to. But there will come one, remember like we talked about last week, one who will suffer on my behalf for the sake of Israel. It gets referred to as this suffering servant, that one will suffer on behalf of the nation of Israel, one who is righteous. And by that, God will accomplish all that he intends to accomplish. So we get to chapter 61. We're looking at this picture of what things will be like Whenever the suffering servant, who we talked about last week, is Jesus, accomplishes all that he intends to accomplish. And so we looked at this very 35,000 foot view last week and we talked about how God desires a relationship of exchange with us. That he takes our brokenness and he gives us wholeness. He takes our sin and he gives us righteousness. And that Jesus makes this possibility, this, this relationship of exchange possible. And so that's what we talked about last week. We're going to dive in real low, about 5,000 feet. This is my airplane reference, in case you're missing it. 35,000 feet. We're going to dive in real low, you know, under the deck here and get down and take a real close look at Isaiah. That was fun. Isaiah chapter 61. Laugh a little bit because it'll wake you up a little bit. Um, So we're going to look at the first, not even three uh, verses of chapter 61, and we're going to talk about how the freedom of God brings the joy of God. And I'm calling this message, Give Me Some Good News. Um, and, And would you turn with me to chapter 61? If you have a Bible, if you don't, you can pull it up on your device, or we'll pull it up on our device and put it right there. Uh, We're going to look at verses 1, 2, and half of 3. Isaiah chapter 61, here's what we read. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. When we read these verses, one of the common threads or what really should jump out to you is this theme of freedom. Do you see that in there? I mean, it's explicitly located there, but uh, this idea of freedom. And so these verses point forward to what will happen when Jesus arrives. And what they say is that God desperately cares about freedom. God cares about people being free. Just look at the way that some of the things that Isaiah talks about, the freedom that Jesus will bring, freedom from poverty, freedom from wounding, freedom uh, for those who are held captive freedom for prisoners. What's difficult when we talk about freedom, especially in America, is the way we think about freedom is not the way the Bible thinks about freedom. Let me explain. We live in a nation that was founded on the idea of freedom, right? We fought the Revolutionary War, We were victorious. We became free. The people who wrote the, the, you know, the Constitution were like, we're going to keep ourselves free from any tyrannical government, right? And so we think about freedom as the absence of anyone over us, any controlling force, any, uh, anyone who could tell us what to do. That's the way we think about it. And so when we think about every time we talk about rights, right? It's like, well, what does the constitution say? And anytime the government gains some level of control, we say we're losing our freedoms or we're giving away our freedoms, right? You guys have heard this and uh, hopefully, or, or maybe these are your thoughts that, that somehow someone being able to tell us what we can or can't do is a giving away of freedom. And this is the way we think about freedom in America, this word, this word freedom, but the Bible doesn't talk about freedom that way. Freedom is not the absence of any uh, superior force or, or person. In the Bible, the Bible assumes that you will always be mastered by someone or something. The teaching of Scripture is that you will always be mastered or you will have a Lord of some sort. The only thing you get to choose in freedom according to the Scriptures is what you will be mastered by. The Bible talks about freedom in an entirely different way, that when God brings freedom to you, when he sets you free, he sets you free to choose what you will be mastered by. If you want an example, think about the Exodus, the the, the nation of Israel is enslaved to Egypt and God sets them free from Egypt. You know, this one like goes through the Red Sea, part the Red Sea, that whole deal, right? And they're set free. And then God says, do you want to be my people or not? You can be mastered by me, or you can go back to Egypt. Those are the choices that you have. The Bible assumes that somebody will master you, that you're going to worship someone or something. The only choice you get is what or whom. That's the, uh, the baseline assumption. What's challenging when we talk about freedom, especially in this country, is that we think freedom means nobody tells us what to do. And the scary part is we assume a lot of times that if the government doesn't tell us what to do, then we're actually free to serve ourselves, which we assume, or we implicitly assume that that means that we're also serving God. But That's not necessarily true. That's not necessarily true. The Bible refers to serving ourselves as idolatry and sin. That uh, Martin Luther said that that sin is life curved in on itself, that when we serve ourselves, it's actually sin. It's actually what's wrong with the world is serving ourselves. But we think that it should be that we're free to do whatever we want. Nobody tells us what to do. Here's the the, the trick. The enemy knows that you're never going to be tempted to worship him, Right? The enemy doesn't say, hey, stop worshiping God. Stop serving God and come and worship and serve me. He doesn't do that. What he does is say, why don't you serve you? It's it's just a little, why don't you serve you? Why don't you put you at the center? It's not a temptation to stop serving God and serve the enemy. It's a temptation to stop serving God and begin serving yourself. And when we put ourselves at the center of the universe... We're not meant to be there. Do you see this in your own life? A constant temptation to serve yourself? We see that, don't we? Or am I the only one? There's a constant temptation to make ourselves the God of our own universe, right? I can't think of a better, uh, maybe, example than social media. Like, think about your social media feed, right? If you ever watch, anybody ever watch the documentaries on this stuff, like the, what do they call them? The Social Dilemma, is that what it's called? There's a couple of them on Netflix you can watch. But there's been study done that the algorithm of social media is geared towards feeding you what you will like. Do you know that? That my social media feed is not identical to anyone else's social media feed. Because Facebook has decided what I will enjoy seeing, which is snakes hanging from light poles eating birds. I'm not sure why, although it is fascinating. I'm also fascinated by alligators that come out of water and get things. I mean, that's also, did you know that cheetahs actually win whenever they fight against alligators? I don't know. That's, that wasn't, sorry. This is my social media feed. But (laughs) I digress. But the idea behind social media is that the algorithm sees you as a king and is constantly feeding you what you would like, right? That's the way it all works. It builds a universe around you. And that's before you ever post anything. Now you start posting things, right? And you start curating what what kind of kingdom you want to have, right? And and the drive is to get as many loyal subjects or, or followers, right, in your kingdom, that this kingdom gets built around you and you want, and every post you make is a chance to gain favor in your kingdom as people like what you, what you say or, or share what you, what you post or they follow you. Uh, and everything about it is a constant building up of a world with you at the center, right? I mean, that's essentially what it is. And if you live into that, you know, like this idea that depression has gotten worse. Have you seen that? Like, some of the studies on that, like it's been actually really, really bad for young people. The reason is because we were never built to be at the center of the universe. We were never built to be that way. But it's not just social media, right? Everything in our culture is built that way, right? Like think about less and less are there places where you go where things don't happen to serve you the way you want to be served, right? Like if you think about this, like how many places do you go where everybody doesn't bend to how, you know, the customer is always right. You remember hearing that? The, the, what will show you how stark that is, is when was the last time you guys went to the BMV? You've been there recently? And when you go there, they don't bend around you at all. Have you, have you seen this? Like you walk in, they give you a ticket and they tell you where to go. And you're like, well, this is inconvenient. But while you're sitting there, suffering through this unbending world, you're like, they could serve me so much better if they would just let me go over there and do what I want to do, right? There are less and less spaces in the world where you're forced to bend around something else. More and more, culture serves you. Everything is built around serving you. You become the center of a universe. Do you see this in your life? Everything is geared towards serving you. And here's the problem eventually that will kill you. You weren't made to be the center of the universe. I mean, if you think about what happens in the world of people who really care about their influence on social media, a like, and I'm having a good day. If somebody unfollows me, I'm crushed, right? If, do you see this? Like it, it spirals out of control. Eventually it will kill you. We are in a culture that is perfectly set up to let you serve yourself until you die. And on the way, you get more irritable, you get more angry, you get less patient, you take advantage of people, you steal from people, you lie to people, you cheat people, you take things from people, all the way until you crash and burn. Because you're serving yourself. And we call it freedom. Do you see how dangerous this is? In other words, the fruit of serving yourself is death. Sound like something else? The wages of sin is death? I, like those things are supposed to be parallel. Part of why we handed you guys cards, you guys, have you guys participated in those, those Lent cards? Like how many of you have done some of that this week? This is the hands of shame. Eight of you, Great. There are still cards, you can still participate. Part of the reason I gave you those is because this is an intentional pushing back on culture that's trying to set you up as the center of the universe. When you abstain from something from, for Lent, you are intentionally making your life harder. You are building your life around something else. And so we abstain from something, right? Like if you're skipping a meal, or you're like, I took social media off of my phone. So if I want to participate in social media, I have to go to a computer. I'm making my life harder. And in place of that, I'm putting God as king, right? We, put, we, we pray or we read scripture. What we're doing is we're saying, I am not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. That's why we're doing that, in case you're wondering why we're doing that. But it's an intentional pushing back And it's an intentional exchange of an intentional no to me being the center and an intentional yes to God being the center. The Bible says that uh, freedom allows us to choose our master. Now, if we don't want to choose ourselves, what does it look like to choose God as our master? What is the freedom of God? I've used this picture before, but I think it illustrates fairly well. Let's say you're in your car. And you're going to drive on 22 out to Pittsburgh, right? You guys familiar? You've driven to Pittsburgh. Great. So you get up to Ebensburg and there's the stoplight in front of the sheets. You guys know what I'm talking about. And you get there and you stop. And by the side of the road is Jesus. And you're like, wow, what's Jesus doing just hanging out on the side of the road? Let Let me have him get in. And so what most of us do is we say, here, Jesus, climb in the passenger seat. I'm going to Pittsburgh. I'll take you with me. But that's not what it is to to be mastered by Jesus. What it is to be mastered by Jesus is to get out, let him get in the driver's seat, and you get in the back seat. Now Jesus drives the car, and he goes where he wants, and you're along for the ride where he wants to go. And from the back seat, you can make suggestions, right? We can pray and make suggestions. Say, Jesus, I was hoping to get to Pittsburgh. Can we do that? Yeah, maybe later. Actually, we're going over here first. This is what it is to surrender your life to Jesus, is to say, Jesus, you're in charge of everything now. I've given you the keys to the car. I've given you the deed to the car. You tell me where we're going. That's what it is to, to make Jesus uh, in charge of everything. And when we surrender our lives to Jesus, so often he cares about things we otherwise wouldn't. Doesn't he? Have you seen that? Look again at verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Isaiah says that Jesus will care for the poor, the brokenhearted, the captive, and the prisoner. If you're serving yourself as master, these are the people that get in the way. These are the people that get in the way whenever you're building your own kingdom because they're inconvenient precisely because they don't add anything to your kingdom. The poor don't have any resources to give you. The brokenhearted kind of weigh you down, and the captives and the prisoners are kind of out of sight, out of mind. If you're building your own kingdom, these people get overlooked. In any world that's built on a self-centered master, it's the poor, the weak, and the powerless who actually pay the biggest cost. Like if you pay attention to what's happening in Ukraine right now, There is one man trying to build his own kingdom, and who's paying the cost? They're bombing hospitals, they're bombing schools, they're bombing nurseries. You have moms who are fleeing and the family is being ripped apart. Who pays the cost whenever one man builds his own kingdom? It's the weak and the powerless. That's always the case. It's always the, even when we do it, who pays the cost are the people who can't contribute anything to our kingdom's. But Isaiah says that the poor, the weak, and the powerless have a special place in God's heart. And what that means is that for all who surrender control of their lives to Jesus, these people have a special place in our hearts too. When we let Jesus drive, he drives to the things he cares about. One way you can take stock of the degree to which you've surrendered your life to Jesus is by asking yourself this question is compassion for the poor the weak and the powerless growing in my life. I'm not talking about like hey I'm all the way there I have all the compassion in the world whatever. I'm saying if you if we're, if you've been following Jesus for 5 years and you go back to the day you started and you compare to today do I have more compassion for the poor the weak and the powerless? Because what Jesus will do over time is he will continue to take you to those people over and over and over, and he'll put in you, to the degree you've surrendered your life and continually do, he will put, you, uh, put in you compassion for those people. And so that's a great way to take a test, like how, how surrendered am I to Jesus? Do I have compassion for people who can't do anything for me, who could never pay me back? Am I growing in compassion? I mean, it would be worth taking us, I mean, sitting with the Lord and actually holding that up. Like, am I growing in compassion? Where does my time, energy, and money go? I'm not saying you have to have it all together yet, but there should be some increase. That the vulnerable actually begin to have a place in your heart. This is what happens when we use our freedom to choose God as our master. And the beautiful thing about choosing God as your master is that it yields different fruit. Where the fruit of serving yourself is death, the fruit of the freedom that God brings is joy. You want more joy in your life? It's more surrender to God. That's where joy comes from. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Look again at verse 2, kind of the end of verse 2. It says, "...to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair." Now, verse 3 says the same thing in three different ways. In Israel, when people would mourn, they would put ashes on their head and sackcloth, and they would forego the oil on their foreheads. This is a way that we know we're mourning. And what what, uh, Isaiah says is that when Jesus brings freedom, he's going to end grieving and mourning and bring praise and joy. That this is the fruit of freedom through Jesus. And what's true is that to the degree that you experience freedom in Christ, you will experience deep joy. I wonder if you've ever experienced great joy. Maybe think about your life and your life in Christ. Have you experienced great joy? I remember I used to be really offended. <laughs> you Imagine I get offended. It's not funny. Um, I, <laughs> I used to be really, anybody knows I'm joking. Um I used to be really offended by people who would worship really extravagantly. It used to really bother me. You know, the kind of people that would jump up and down. And, you know, when I gave my life to Jesus, it made sense to me that worship was a whole body thing. So your hands go where they're supposed to go, right? You worship with your body. We don't just mouth the words. We actually worship with our body. So that made sense to me. But it used to offend me. Like This is as comfortable as I get, right? Anybody who's more comfortable than this, there's something wrong with you, right? And I would just judge people, just judge people all the time, like, what are they, this is just a show. What is this? I used to get so mad, so, so mad. Anybody like me? Anybody courageous? In Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. But over time, as I progressively surrendered more and more of my life to Jesus, what happened is God began to set me free from things that had a deep hold on my life for years. And as he set me free from those things, what naturally flowed out was a more expressive worship. Like joy is a natural expression from freedom. That's naturally what happens. That if you experience more and more freedom from God, what will happen? I don't have to tell you to be joyful. You just will. You just will. It just happens. I don't have to tell you worship more extravagantly, right? Like, that bothers me. Does it bother anybody else? We don't do it here. But I have been in circles, man, when people are like telling me, well, put your hands up and dance around. And I'm like, don't, don't tell me what to do. This should just come out of you naturally. This should just come out of Freedom. Anyway, again, digression. Next week I'll have more sleep. Um, but what I began to understand is that joy naturally flows out of the freedom that I was experiencing. And I recognized that God was changing my heart. We were in Columbus, sitting about halfway back one Sunday, and we used to like like they were in sections, and so we'd sit in the back of the section that was in the front. Um, and so I'm standing there, we're worshiping, you know, whatever. And, And I'm looking and there's this guy in the front. And I kid you not, man, like I don't, I would break my ankles to dance the way this guy was dancing. He was, I mean, he was just, and there was no rhythm. I mean, he was my kind of guy, no rhythm, but dancing. And I recognized God was changing my heart because my response was, I wonder what his story is. I feel so free today, but I wonder what story makes that kind of joy come out. What kind of freedom makes that kind of joy come out? And I recognized at that point that like, okay, God is changing my heart. There's this, there's this story in, in uh, 2 Samuel 6 where uh, David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into the nation of Israel. And as they're coming back in, he's dancing. And verse t- uh, 16 says this, it says, as the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, now that's David's wife, Daughter of Saul watched from the window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Now, she felt this way because she felt like this is no way to worship God. This isn't the way a king should act, right? Anyone of us feel that way? Like, I'm coming to church. I got to act right. I got to, you know, I grew up that way. Stand still. I mean, I'm messing with my kids over here, right? Be quiet. You're being disruptive, right? That kind of thing. So she decides that this is not how you should act before the Lord as a king. And here's what he says in verse 21. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. King David said, this is the appropriate response to the freedom and favor of God. The appropriate response is joy. There's a joy that comes when you have experienced the living God and have experienced his freedom. And it's a freedom and a joy that's offensive to people who haven't experienced it. When you experience the freedom of God, the joy that gets released in you is offensive to people who are not free. Do you recognize this? Have you seen this? You're afraid half the time, I'll bet to do anything expressive because you're like, what are other people going to think? Guess what? Who cares? Like, who really cares? The appropriate response to the Lord and the freedom that he provides is joy and its expression. And to the degree that you experience the freedom of God, you will become more joyful and more expressive. Listen, I'll tell you one of the most powerful things. I have prayed for people who are in bondage to demonic presence. And when they get set free, I mean, I've told you guys some of this, I feel like it's the most irresponsible thing God does is allow us to do that. Like there's so much power in it. But when people get set free, I've seen them, they just start laughing. They just start laughing. And what has happened is, is they've been set free and the joy of the Lord has come on them and they just laugh. There's one girl in this church, and I won't say who it is, but who I have prayed for, she got set free and she laughed for two days. She texted me like four hours later. She's like, is this normal? I'm still laughing. Everybody at work thinks I'm weird. I'm like, they thought you were weird anyway. You follow Jesus. I'm not saying everybody has to dance or everybody has to laugh, but an experience of the freedom of God will release joy in you. And listen... You should be free to express the joy that God gives you. There's nobody here who's going to tell you to stop. And if they do, have them talk to me. Be free. To the degree that God sets you free, let the joy flow, man. My question to you is, have you experienced the freedom of God this way? And the joy of God this way? Like I said, you don't have to laugh, although, you know, everybody's real comfortable with people crying in church, but nobody's comfortable with people laughing in church. Have you noticed that? We give more ground to grief and sorrow than we do to joy. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you were in church, somebody started laughing, and you're like, what's wrong with them, right? But if somebody's crying, everybody's like, yeah, okay, that's normal. Could we not be open to the joy God wants to pour out that we might just laugh? Or are we so stifled? God God wants to set us free. If you've never had an experience of deep joy, can I make a suggestion to you? And I'll wrap it up with this. Can I suggest that perhaps you've not been completely open and honest with the Lord? If you've never experienced deep joy... It's because you've never experienced deep freedom and can I just suggest that you've probably held on to all the baggage and not allowed the Lord to do anything with it. Because if you open yourself up to the Lord, you know what? He wants your freedom more than you do. Do you know that God wants to set you free more than you want to be free? I said last week we create these little wedges in our lives, right? This is the spiritual wedge that God can touch and the rest of these are up to me. But that's not the biblical perspective. And the more we open up all the wedges to God and say, here's the mess, he's not going to shame you. He's not going to condemn you. He wants to exchange the broken pieces for whole pieces. And that's where the freedom comes and the joy comes. I mean, we've been at a real deficit of joy in our culture lately. We're, we're a people who, are, who have undergone trauma, We're a people that are wounded. We're a people that are broken. What if we started opening that stuff up to the Lord? What if we started saying, I don't want this brokenness anymore? Could it be that we might actually experience wholeness and freedom and healing and salvation in ways that we never thought we we would? Could it be that we might be a joyful people amongst a culture that desperately needs to see joy? You know people that need to see joy, don't you? We talked about this last week, right? What God wants to do in the culture he first does through the church. Emotional health and joy are the same in that regard. He will bring healing and wholeness through you, release joy in you, and then you're going to be the weirdo at your workplace that's laughing. And people are like, what are you laughing about? Don't you know that there's bad things happening in the world? Yes, but God is so good. And I believe that God wants to do something about all the bad things that are happening. And maybe it starts with you. I think God wants to set us free, and here's the beautiful thing: is I think God wants to do it today. I don't think we have to wait. I think God is present. God comes where He's wanted, and I think He wants to set us free. The question today is: Will we let Him? Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release His kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.